This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 534, John Wathen, manager, Kansas City Royals. Okay, John Wathen, and we will get to him and the Royals here in just a moment. But before we do, we had one brief follow-up from our last episode about Mike Henneman, and that is that I asked for a ruling from at Painted Cap on Twitter over whether the Mike Henneman card was a painted cap. The authority on doctored cards related to trades and team changes has ruled that the Mike Henneman cap is not known to be a painted cap. It truly was just a very strange Tigers cap and a truly remarkable and all-natural cleft chin. They could have, you know, spackled that up, but they decided (laughs) against it. Leave that chin in. But now let's go to John Wathen. And, And David, why are we talking about John today? I saw John Wathen's name come up on Twitter a while back, and I filed it away in the back of my brain for a future episode. And then I was searching around through his Sabre bio and came across a truly outrageous story in his Sabre bio written by Bill Johnson and decided if there's a way that we can fit David Lynch, Werner Herzog, and Family Feud into an episode, we got to move that to the top of the list. (laughs) So along with those three seemingly unrelated topics, John Wathen holds an all-time record. And this is a pretty strange-looking manager card as well. This is no Tommy Lasorda here. No golf cart, but we do have a batter's helmet. That sounds like everything you need for an epic episode. So let's get to the front of 534. We've got John Wathen in a batter's helmet, one that has the ear cover on his left side, which I don't believe we've seen in other batting helmets so far. And then on the right side, there's no ear cover, of course, and his hair's just kind of poofing out. He's glistening. He's kind of looking kind of sweaty, like it's really hot there, or the lights are very bright because you've got a bright sky above him, but no shadows. And so it looks like maybe there's lights being reflected up onto his face. A good bit of chest hair peeking out under a gray undershirt and his uh, mesh top. So kind of a sloppy look. They definitely caught him. He's surprised. Wasn't expecting to have his picture taken. But this is also a man. He's not taking a golf cart anywhere. He's running everywhere. This is our sweatiest manager yet. (laughs) Maybe our sweatiest player. This looks like even more so than any other card. A guy who actually has been doing work. Yeah, he looks like he's been doing yard work. Wearing like, a helmet. I don't know why he's wearing a helmet. Yeah, he's like... He's chopping edging. down branches. He's chopping branches. He's edging, trimming hedges, maybe. This card looks more like a player than a manager. And for good reason, John was only a couple years removed from being on a major league roster. Two years removed from playing in the World Series. Very young for a manager at this point. Under 40. I think he was... 37 or 38 when he became manager of the Kansas City Royals. So very youthful and active shot here of John. Now let's go to the back of 534. 
And we have manager John Wathen, height 6'2", weight 205, batted right and through right, born October 4th, 1949 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, with a home in Blue Springs, Missouri. These manager cards just have a team checklist on the back, so aside from looking at all the names and revisiting Thad Bosley and Jim Eisenreich and Dan Quisenberry, not a lot to go on here except for this brief bit of biographical information about John. No stats, even though we will get into his career stats in a minute. He was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The film Cedar Rapids with Ed Helms was actually filmed in Ann Arbor, Michigan. As a child, John didn't spend much time in Cedar Rapids. His father, Jim Wathen, was a pilot. His mother, Mary, had been married previously. She had two sons, George and Mark, and had lived in Florida with her first husband. In 1946, That first husband, a Navy surgeon, died at the age of 36 of a virus that attacked his brainstem, bulbar polymyelitis. And because of that incident, Mary spent a year in a psychiatric hospital grieving. Doctors encouraged her family that they should adopt the two boys, fearing that Mary would never recover or regain her sanity after this incident. However, after a year, Mary moved to Iowa She had regained her faculties, met Jim, remarried, and had a son, John Wathen. That marriage didn't last very long. The couple divorced when John was two and moved out west to San Diego, where John grew up. Growing up, he always wanted to be a professional baseball player. His older brothers were also athletes, and they encouraged him that if he wanted to go pro, he should be catcher, as that was the easiest way to make it to the big leagues. His one brother, Mark, played basketball at the University of San Diego, and George would go on to become a medical doctor in the San Francisco Bay Area. John went to St. Augustine High School. Famous alumni of St. Augustine include the late Raiders defensive tackle Daryl Russell, David Popkins, who's currently the Twins hitting coach, and Servando Carrasco, professional soccer player perhaps better known as husband of U.S. women's national team star Alex Morgan. While at St. Augustine, John played basketball and football, but he really loved baseball. He said football didn't really get his attention because he was only on the field for half the time. He didn't feel like it was worth practicing for a full week to only play for half a game. So he really liked to be in the action. Playing catcher probably would be the suitable position for somebody who likes to be in the action all the time. But when he was at St. Augustine, He played wherever the team needed him, wherever they were weakest. So sometimes first base, third base, outfield. And he played well, but as he said, at the end of the year, the scholarship offer came rolling in. One, from the University (laughs) of San Diego. So the USD Toreros, a smaller program than San Diego State or UC San Diego, is where John went. And when he went there, they didn't have a history of... Major League success, Wathen was the first player drafted from USD. But since then, they've had a bunch of players, and probably the best career of their alumni is Chris Bryant. Wathen was a history major and a star for the Toreros, was the all-SoCal conference as a freshman first baseman in 1968, and then followed that up with another all-conference appearance in 1969 as a catcher. He also stole 30 bases that year in 32 attempts as a catcher. You don't see that very often. And as a junior in 1970, he hit 430 and stole 30 bases. So really blossomed in college. 
After that junior season, he also hit 377 in the California Collegiate League. He played in the 1970 Amateur World Series for the United States, winning the silver medal. And he started to pick up some buzz going into the January draft. And scouts Spider Jorgensen and Rosie Gilhausen convinced the Royals to pick John with the number four pick in the first round. When I saw these names, I said, oh my gosh, these are great names. And then I remembered, oh, we've talked about both of these guys. This is the second appearance for Spider Jorgensen. And I'm going to admit, I saw the name. And was <laughs> and when I looked at his Sabre bio, I was like, oh, this guy has a great Sabre bio. Oh, yeah, we've, we talked about it in the Mark Grace episode. He signed Mark Grace. Spider was named because of his shorts that reminded his coach of a Black Widow spider, as listeners will recall. Rosie Gilhausen signed George Brett and Dan Quisenberry and passed away in 1997. But those two guys convinced John to sign with the Kansas City Royals. John said that he didn't know anything about Kansas City except what he saw on TV. There's a lot of cows and Sheriff Matt Dillon kept law and order. But John did know that the Royals were an expansion team, and if he signed with an expansion team, there was a good chance that he would get to the big leagues right away. He didn't get to KC right away, but he was one of only three players in that first round of the January draft to make it to the big leagues. As we've talked about before, the January draft typically does not have as many players reaching the majors from that level. And it's a lot of guys who are either from junior college, have been drafted before, or go back to Mm. school. So not a lot of success in that 1971 draft. In that spring, John also got married. And before he was sent to the minors, as we just kind of discussed, he went through that same conversation with his new wife. And he told his wife, Nancy... He told her every bad thing that he could think of about the minor leagues, about bus rides, about being away from your family all the time. And he said he didn't want her to think that he was going to go straight to the big leagues. But she still said yes. And John and Nancy are still married 51 years later. John split that first season between A-level clubs in Waterloo, Iowa, and San Jose. 1972, he played... At single A, double A, and triple A, playing well at all three levels, hitting 285 combined, despite being out for four weeks with a broken wrist early in the season. In 1973 and 74, he was at double A, had a dislocated shoulder, which kept him out of about half of 1973, and his hitting started to drop, but he still earned a spot starting at triple A Omaha in 1975. And that season, he's finally fully healthy. He hits 303, made the American Association All-Star team. He started in 1976 a little slow. He hit only 155, but the Royals catcher Buck Martinez got injured, so Wathen was called up as a backup. He hit 286 in 27 games in his first year in the majors, got an important start in the AL West clinching win over the A's in late September. And the Royals made the playoffs, but they lost to the Yankees three games to two. Wathen played only two innings of that ALCS. 1977 and 78, John makes the team out of spring training. John was the backup catcher, played in 122 games over those two seasons. He hit 328 and 300 in that limited role, and then hit his first home run in 1977. In 77, 78, and 79 together, he hit two home runs every season and also had two steals each of those seasons. These are huge numbers. It just it looks interesting on the stat line to see two, 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 two. Yeah, I liked <laughs> it. The Royals made the ALCS in 77 and 78. These were really good Royals teams that just couldn't get over the hump and couldn't beat the Yankees. 
they lost each of those seasons to the Yankees in the ALCS three years in a row. And Waffen was 0 for 9 in those three series. Didn't get a ton of playing time, but got on the field a little bit. And that takes us to 1979, which was an incredibly difficult year for John, both on and off the field. On the field, he played in 90 games, 49 of them at first base. He hit only 206, which was a significant drop-off from the previous two seasons. But there was an incident in mid-season that you can see after which he hit under 200. He hit 177 to close out the season. This off-field incident must have impacted John and is possibly the most shocking thing that we've come across in all of the episodes that we've done. And so just as a little bit of a content warning, this is a pretty horrific crime, and we sometimes get into true crime on, on this podcast, but never really anything that's been up to this level. And so at this time in 1979, John's mother is still living in San Diego. His older brother, Mark Urofsky who had been a talented basketball player, played at the University of San Diego, was now 34. He was living in San Diego with his mother, was a stage actor and a poet, and apparently was a very talented stage actor. He'd spent his younger years traveling the world. He'd been in Germany, Sweden, Afghanistan, India, developing odd habits and displaying some mental health issues. After a few years, his brother George paid for him to fly back to San Diego He's briefly institutionalized, given shock treatments, which helped stabilize him. He starts winning some acting awards, working at the Globe Theater in Balboa Park. And in 1979, he's Marcus cast as Agamemnon in an adaptation of the ancient Greek play Orestes. While he's rehearsing for this play, he starts acting bizarrely. At one time, he's found screaming on his mother's roof in a bathrobe with a photo of his father in one hand and an American flag in the other. He's again hospitalized for these odd behaviors, removed from the play due to this bizarre incident. And when he got out, he took his mother to see the play. The story of Orestes involves the death of Agamemnon at the hands of Orestes' mother. And then Orestes subsequently murders his mother. After the play, Mark told his mom that he should have been cast as Orestes and not Agamemnon. Foreshadowing what's about to happen, shortly thereafter, Mark tried to kill his mother by smothering her with a pillow. She ran across the street to a neighbor's house. Mark took a three-foot-long ceremonial sword from India out of the trunk of his car and stabbed his mother 28 times in the kitchen of this neighbor. This story made national headlines because Mark was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was committed to a mental institution instead of prison. He spent years in a state hospital, escaped, traveled across the country, was a fugitive from the law, was in and out of custody, and finally passed away in 2003. The nature of this story was so outrageous that it also inspired a fictionalized movie The film My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done was produced by David Lynch, directed by Werner Herzog, and starring Michael Shannon. I haven't watched the movie, and I didn't read great reviews of the movie. I have seen many of Werner Herzog's movies, and at some point, hopefully, we can talk about the great works of Werner Herzog in a situation that isn't quite so tragic. But to see this in a Sabre bio, just as a paragraph that was thrown in there, And then it goes right back into a career 
for John Wathan, he took about five days off. That killing was on June 10th. Wathan went to San Diego to arrange his mother's funeral, and he was back on the field June 15th. There's no wonder that from that point on, he hit 177 for the rest of the season. Just had to have totally thrown his world into madness. See, he's gone for only five days, but how did the rest of the team respond? I didn't find many articles about a response to John or quotes from John or anything like that or quotes from the team. I think that the team just rallied around him uh, going into the next season and he had started to put down roots in Kansas City. His family was now living in Kansas City and he was really a part of the team and kind of established in the team. And so the team kind of helped rally around John and helped him get through this. 1980, for a lot of reasons, will be a fresh start and a totally different experience for John and for the Royals after that tragedy in 1979. On the field for John, he had a career-high 510 plate appearances, played in 126 games, starting 72 of them behind the plate. This was his most productive season offensively. He hit 305 with six home runs for a 115 OPS+. He added seven triples and 17 stolen bases, only caught three times, which is very good speed for a catcher, and was valued at 3.2 offensive war, which was 10th best among catchers. On defense, he was okay, but he was below the league average in percent caught stealing, only 27%. And that low percentage may have been thanks to May 1980, when in seven games against the A's, (laughs) he gave up 20 steals in 24 attempts. Not that unusual with the A's at that time. And that included seven steals in one game. Just a really rough month, and I think that Billy Martin saw a weakness and decided to go after it. And yeah, as you said, those A's teams in the early 80s were stealing hundreds of bases, and when you have Ricky Henderson at the top of your order, you're going to be able to put up some gaudy steals numbers. The Royals make the playoffs. John starts games one and two of the ALCS in right field and then came in as a pinch hitter in Game 3. And this time, the Royals sweep the Yankees, finally beating them. John went 0 for the series, but they get to make it to the World Series. And in the World Series against the Phillies, he starts two games as catcher, getting his first postseason hits in a 2-for-3 performance in Game 6. However, unfortunately for the Royals, the Phillies win that Game 6 and the series. In the offseason, John received a single MVP vote well, 10th place for MVP. So, you know, it's it's better than none, but a good season. And he was good enough that the Royals allowed troubled all-star Daryl Porter to leave in free agency, thinking that Watham would be able to take his place. So David, always tough to make it to the World Series, but lose. But in this case, the Royals get a chance for revenge, sweet, sweet revenge, when they face off in the most important cultural institution of the early 1980s in America, and that is the game show Family Feud. Matt, you're a big fan of the Family Feud. What does the Family Feud mean to you in your life? So listeners to this show know know about my many podcasts, but my favorite other podcast is my, is my podcast, The Joker's Wild, about the game show The Joker's Wild. <laughs> I love game shows. Game shows were my favorite thing to watch as a kid. 
right up there with sports. And my two favorite characters on television were Howard Cosell and Richard Dawson, both of whom look and sound pretty similar, have similar mannerisms, both larger than life, both kind of chauvinistic, bad jokes, often drunk. These were guys I loved very much. And so being able to watch on YouTube a 1980s episode of Richard Dawson, clearly drunk, hosting the family feud with the stars from the Royals and Phillies. This really, really warmed my heart this week, David. It's time for the World Series Instant Replay on Family Feud. Introducing the Philadelphia Phillies, Larry Boa, Gary Maddox, Mike Smith, Del Unser, and Dick Ruthven. Ready for action. And the Kansas City Royals. Dan Quisenberry, Willie Wilson, Paul Splitor, John Wappen, and Dennis Leonard. On your mark, let's start the Family Feud World Series. With the star of Family Feud, Richard Dawson. We've got it. we got a great time. i got to tell you right now, this is the third, fourth day, third game that we played. The Phillies won. They are playing for the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic. They've won for their charity $20,796. Yeah! And for the Bruce Rice Scholarship Fund, the University of Missouri and the Kansas City Chapter, the Arthritis Fund, my buddies, the Royals. Oh, the guests here. Oh. Work here, never eat here, never eat here. My buddies have won $1,422. Congratulations. Dan Quisenberry was the team captain. No George Brett. George Brett was busy. And when he introduces Wathen. John Wathen, he's a 300 hitter, can play any position well, and has a great impression of John the Duke Wayne. Oh, well, I wish I hadn't said anything about that yet. Very good. <laughs> Would you agree that this is a good John Wayne impression? Well, I'd say it's not a bad one. Back in the 80s, everyone was doing a John Wayne impression at all times. I mean, essentially, we had the president of the United States was essentially doing a John Wayne impression for eight years. So it really, it's not much of a surprise to see it on this show. And, you know, like John Wayne, both are born in Iowa. They're both with initials JW. So Wathen's wife even calls him the Duke. His teammates mm. call him the Duke. That was his nickname. Yeah, I can imagine that this is a guy who practices his John Wayne impression a lot. And then maybe used it as manager. Oh, I don't know, partner. So a couple highlights from this show I want to, I want to bring up, David. 100 people surveyed. Top five answers are on the board. You've got to try and find the most popular answer. Here's the question. Name an appliance that sits on a kitchen counter. Yeah. Can opener. Can opener. You got it? Two answers will beat it, Larry. Toaster. Toaster. Yes. We will play. We're going to play. I want the listeners to take a look around your own kitchen and think of what it would look like if you had on your counter a stand-up can opener and think of how different your life would be now. Number one answer, by the way, was a toaster, which is still the correct answer. It was definitely a sign of the times how low a microwave was. I think only mm. 2% answered microwave, which 1980, that was the early days of the microwave. There were some very good handshakes going on. 
with Willie Wilson as well. I think a highlight of the show is Richard Dawson attempting to shake hands with Willie Wilson, who was eating a lollipop the whole time as well. Handshakes are a critical part of the show. They're just like just like in curling, uh, shaking hands is a, is a critical part of playing the feud. Also notable was the um, a Rommel in the desert joke about the Nazis. Uh, I know, definitely I laughed. I chuckled at the Erwin Rommel. That was a good one joke. He was found in the desert. He said, Rommel? Uh, no, what did you say? Sand. <laughs> Sir, I, my old war days. Uh, survey said. In the regular segment of the feud, Wathen only got one question correct. Even worse than Wathen's performance was Mike Schmidt, who went 0 for 3 and mm. seemed very confused, maybe a little nervous to be on the show, but he had great hair and a great beard. Literally striking out Mike Schmidt. On the Family Feud, the perfect game show for baseball because it's based around strikes. After that somewhat disappointing performance, not just the John Wayne impression, but getting a lot of the questions, just striking out on a lot of those questions, John Wathen was selected to be the Royals' final feud participant alongside Dennis Leonard. And what happened? Yeah, basically John Wathen pitches a perfect game. He gets the 200 points in the first round, which means that he gets the number one answer on all five of the questions. It's something you see very, very rarely. You don't even need the second participant. And just pandemonium ensues as uh, the Royals win a whole bunch of money for their charity. One other important note here. I think somebody was chewing dip. Somebody had a cup in their hand. And Richard Dawson pretended to drink it which made me gag <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah you oh that's a that's a level of humor you don't see around much these days david this ties the series two games to two listeners if you find out what happened in game five or have the results of this let us know we will do research this week and follow up in a future episode and should be really in john wathen's baseball reference how the outcome of this series went yeah, I think that's that's stat head material. Mm, mm. You got that's behind a paywall, as it should be. So a- after this like epic performance, we now get to 1981 and the st- the strike shortened season. Wathen plays the majority of the 89 games as catcher. He hit 252 and stole 11 bases. The Royals again made the playoffs. They lose to the A's in the AL Divisional Series, and John went three for ten. That leads to 82, which is a record-breaker season for John Wathen. He hit 270 in 121 games and stole 36 bases. The Major League Baseball record for a catcher at that time was 30, held by Litchfield, Illinois' own Hall of Famer Ray Schalk since 1916. So that record had been held for 66 years. Wathen had always had good speed, and Dick Hauser gave his team a lot of latitude and a lot of freedom to, to run. Hauser said Wathen had a good walking lead. He knew pitchers and most importantly, wasn't afraid of being embarrassed. Wathen really could have had well over 40, maybe even 50 steals that season, but he missed six weeks after fouling a ball off his foot in July. He breaks the record in Texas. The Rangers grounds crew knew that it could happen. And so they were ready. They had an old base out on second that they installed just so that John could pull it up after he stole second base and keep that base as a keepsake. And then John stole third base to break the record. 
<laughs> so third baseman Buddy Bell, the umpire are out there. They're trying to pull up the base, but it won't budge. And John says, it's okay, guys. It's okay. I'll, I'll get it after the game. And he's kind of embarrassed about it. Feels a little bit awkward. The grounds crew then comes out. It really ruins the moment. The crowd had stopped cheering. It's an away game anyways. The grounds crew finally gets the bag off of there, gives it to John. And so he's just awkwardly standing there in front of a silent Rangers crowd. And then he turns it into a bar stool. So he still has that base at his house. That record still stands since 1982. Nobody's really come close. Jason Kendall had 26 one year. Biggio had 25 when he was a catcher. Probably will never be broken given the way the game is played these days. And not too surprising that he was a player to do it at the time. We knew that he was fast and a good athlete, but he also didn't have as many years catching. He'd played a lot of other positions as well. He compared himself to guys that had 10 years of crouching, catching 100-plus games. And he said, the way I figure it, I've got a 32-year-old body and 26-year-old legs. I didn't play that much in the minors or even up here until the last couple of years. And I haven't worn out my legs the way other catchers might. He followed up that record-setting performance with 28 steals and a 245 average in 1983. But his offense fell off a lot. He hit only 181 and lost the starting catcher role to Don Slott. The Royals did keep him around for 1985, though. Wathen played in 60 games. He hits 234, only a 78 OPS plus. But the Royals make the playoffs. They win the AL West. And John maybe gets a chance? Not really in the ALCS. He, he didn't play when the Royals beat the Jays. But he did get one at bat in the World Series, striking out in a Game 4 loss to the Cardinals. He was on the field for a memorable moment, brought in as a pinch runner down one nothing in the bottom of the ninth of Game 6. Of course, Game 6 of that World Series, well known for George Orta and his single and Don Denkinger's call. John was on first base when Dane Orge singled to right, driving in two runs ahead of John for a Royals victory in Game 6. The Royals then would go on to win Game 7 in a blowout to win the World Series. That was Wathen's last appearance in the majors. The Royals gave him a couple options after the season. He could attempt to sign with another team or stay with the Royals as a coach and bullpen catcher. And since his family was settled in KC, he decided to retire. After that 85 season, he goes out on top. So closing the book on John Wathen as a player, 10 seasons, all with the Royals, a 262 average, 21 home runs, and 105 steals, one all-time catcher record, one MVP vote in 1980, and one World Series ring in 1985. How about in retirement? Early in his career, his manager, Whitey Herzog, had told reporters that John was future management material. So John took up that coaching mantle and was back in the game as a coach in 1986, which was a difficult year for the Royals. Their manager, Dick Hauser, was diagnosed with a brain tumor halfway through the season, and this forced the team to reshuffle their staff, and John was moved from the bench to first base coach. 1987, he takes the management role at AAA Omaha, and late in the season, the Royals are two games under 500 and they fired manager Billy Gardner. Wathen was brought in, and that's why we have this card. Kansas City finishes out the season 21-15 and 15 under Wathen, which brings them up into second place, and Wathen ends up earning the job full-time 
spends the next three full seasons as the Royals manager. His best record was in 1989, when the Royals finished with 92 wins, which was good for second place, but seven games behind the A's. That season, Wathen finished fifth in AL Manager of the Year voting. Unfortunately, they followed that up with a sixth place finish in 1990. And in the middle of a particularly rough stretch, a reporter asked him if he felt like he needed the patience of Job to be the manager of the Royals. Wathen responded, was Job a second baseman? (laughs) After a slow start in 1991, the Royals fired John. Overall, he had a 515 winning percentage while with Kansas City. He was brought into the Angels coaching staff in 1992 and ended up as an interim manager for 89 games that season when Buck Rogers was recovering from injuries sustained in a bus accident. John remained as a bench coach for the Angels, bullpen coach for the Red Sox in 94. He did some TV analysis, scouted, and then returned to the Royals organization full-time in 2006, and he's been there ever since. He was a base running instructor, and as of 2022, he's a special assistant for player development. As I said, he's been married for 51 years. He has two sons and a daughter. Derek played in the minors for 10 years. Dusty played mostly in the minors, but spent three games with the Royals in 2002, and is currently the Phillies' third base coach. And his youngest, his daughter Dina, works for the Royals in alumni relations. So we've come a long way in this story from a young, sweaty coach in a batting helmet on a card. We've taken quite a ride. So after looking into more about John Wathen, what do we think? John had a decent career as a player, had an odd record for a catcher, but it's very emblematic of 1980s baseball. And he's a baseball lifer. Drafted in 1971, he's been in baseball over 50 years. He is on some lists of best Royals ever. You know, this is a guy with 4.9 wins above replacement. Uh, Some of those lists are from the early 2000s, so there was less history then. But he played for a lot of winning teams, and he played for a full decade, won a World Series, and remains with the Royals as part of that Royals family. And I think fans appreciate that, and some internet pundits appreciate John Wathen, the player. Of course, we appreciate a backup catcher who gets to be on Family Feud. And also what John had to deal with in... 1979 should not be overlooked and his ability to overcome something so traumatic is really impressive and to go on and continue his career and continue his life and it it takes a lot of personal strength to go through something like that something that intrigued me about reading this saber bio in this little short paragraph about this 1979 murder was that it was almost a throwaway paragraph in this biography of John Wathen. And then when I started to look into it, I found full stories and full follow-ups and 30 years later follow-ups on his brother. And his brother clearly had mental health issues. This story gripped the nation, became national news, became a movie. But I found full breakdowns, including his poems, including things glorifying his intellect. Uh, in a way that was troubling. And some of that was even back in the 80s, talking about this troubled genius. And without getting too much into it, yes, there were clearly mental health issues. Now, with the number of true crime podcasts that exist, the glorification of sometimes the wrong person and 
we just did a podcast about John Wathan. <laughs> and I, I think that it's an also an important story to tell and maybe one that John didn't want to talk about his reaction to, to his mother's death. And I never found any interviews with him or any information from him about his mother or about the incident. But I, I do think he himself is a remarkable person who continues to do good things for the Royals organization and has a story that is worth telling and a story that is worth celebrating. Yeah, I agree. It's I mean, what a shocking incident that was, but just one large event in a very eventful life. So a very compelling story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home for listening. So whether your favorite Herzog is Vitey or Werner, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.